Hello, and welcome to the Futurista podcast, career advice for Gen Z girls. Olivia here representing Gen Z, and I'm joined by Lucy, who's representing the older crowd. Hey, hey, I'm not that old. (laughs) Anyways, as you probably know by now, Futurista's mission is to help teens discover their dream careers. Right, and one of the ways we do this is by sharing the authentic stories of today's role models. So today we're talking with Renee Hajek, an assistant professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Toronto. If you saw our post on Instagram, you'll know she's a cosmologist and TED senior fellow who's passionate about challenging the stereotypes of what a scientist should look like. We're so excited for you to hear this episode. Renee teaches us that you don't have to pick just one thing. You can feel free to explore your interests and have it all. She also reminded us to not fear trying new things, as there's always something to learn from just going for it. Let's jump in! So glad to have you here, Renee. First, can you break down your many roles for us and take us through some of the day-to-day? I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and so um, one of my main roles is that I take observations or use observations with telescopes and then try and kind of decipher the observations and match them to uh, current theoretical models that I also sometimes develop. And so, so like as a researcher, that's one of my main roles is to try and kind of disentangle things. Um, another thing that I do is I train students to do the same thing. So uh, that's something I really take quite seriously and I'm, I really value. I meet, meet these young people who are starting this and it's kind of like, it's like a craft. Like we often think of being a researcher as you're just like Einstein sitting having these ideas, but it's much more, I believe, uh, a way to train your brain to think in a certain way. So one of the jokes that I make is that um, my job is to be wrong better every day. Mm. So I know that I'm struggling to understand something in the universe. I write, say, a piece of code. It gives me some answer that I don't understand. So I, I know that it's wrong and all I have to do is try and test it so that even if it's still wrong, it's teaching me about ways to make it better until I sort of inch my way towards an understanding. And that process, like teaching people, what questions do you ask to try and figure out where your mistake is? And what's the next step? If you give me this piece of result, what's the next logical question that I have? What's the next step that I would have? In the, in the beginning, students come into my group and they sometimes tell me that it, it feels like we're speaking a different language. Like I'm asking these questions, they think, you know, she just whipped this question out of thin air and she's some kind of genius. And then you realize very slowly, it's just, you just train your brain. And so I take that quite seriously as one of my roles is teaching how to develop a, a kind of patience and a, a stubbornness. I think you need to be quite stubborn if you're a scientist because you're almost always wrong. Like we talk about the Eureka moment, but there's no way we're doing this for that because the Eureka moments ha- happen so infrequently that yeah. you really, I feel doing it, it's like a huge puzzle. Like you get a 25,000 piece puzzle and every, every color is red and you have to just figure it out, which I love. It's great. Um, and then I also teach undergrads and that's really fun because rather than teaching them the craft of science, I'm just exploding their minds with new concepts that they haven't heard of before. So it's like the very first step when I'm like, you thought you understood stars. Well, tell, let me tell you something new about stars. Let me tell you something new about galaxies. And that's really great because you watch students just like, have their minds expanded in like away from the stuff that they've done before, which I love. I'm trying to understand something about the universe and the universe like doesn't care if I understand it or not, but I'm trying to figure it out. And so it's like this mini battle of patience. Um, So my job is harder than I thought it would be, but it's even more fulfilling than I thought it would be. I can't often describe to people how weird it is 
or how surreal it is, I should say, that, you know, I'll sometimes go to a talk and we, we spend the whole talk debating, like, what happened in the first second of the life of the universe. And, like, people pay me to do that. Like, it's crazy. It's like a crazy, crazy job. And uh, I love it. Wow, that's amazing. How would you describe yourself outside the classroom? What do you do in your free time? When I have downtime, I like to try to make sure that I use other parts of myself. So I love mm. like really bad painting. Um, like very, I talk about like uh, my painting is just like feelings. Like I just get feelings out onto the canvas, which is really fun. And um, and I like uh, music. I like to sing. I like to sing karaoke, but I also I'm trying to get my voice trained during this COVID stuff. Um, and then um, I'm really passionate about communicating science to people. So thinking about you know, are there videos we can make to talk to people about um, science? Are there ways I can challenge people to with what the idea of what they think a scientist is or what they look like? And can I can I I don't know be a person doing science that isn't just some some lab coat um, person? What inspired you to become a scientist? Were there any moments in childhood that had a major impact on you to become one? Um, I, I sometimes tell the story. Someone gave my brother a, a microscope. Of course, they gave it to my brother, but whatever. That's a whole other thing. They gave my brother a microscope. And um, I don't know if you've ever looked through a microscope, but, like, it blew my mind. It, I, took, I, I took a piece of skin, which is kind of gross, but I took a piece of my own skin and I put it under the microscope and I saw cells and I was just like, like, I, yeah. I just couldn't believe that you could, something that was so obvious became so interesting. And I just loved that. And I loved like the hiddenness of, of science, like you take a thing that you think you understand and then you realize it's so much more complex. And I really love that. Um, yeah. And so I just wanted to ask questions. And then when I was, you know, in, in high school, I found out that you could go to college and study, um, what study physics. And I just thought, well, that's great. And then I started studying. I was like, this is just every day is something new that I'm learning that I didn't know before. And I just want to keep doing this. And then I, I was just lucky to have people like nudge me and say, yo, you can keep doing this. You can get a master's. You can keep going and get a PhD. I was like, I want to be a prof. Like I want to do this as my job. It sounds like there are so many things you love about your career, but we're curious. Are there any things that drive you nuts about either your job or your industry? Yeah. So about the job, the thing that I try to tell students, so they'll come to me after say a summer when they start working with me and their code will be broken. And they're like, I've tried everything. I say to them, okay, you need to come up with five new ideas as to how to fix this. And then they do. And then they're like, nothing, none of that works. I was like, okay, you have to come up with five more. And that's, so it's like a creativity, but like under duress. And sometimes there are days where I just think this code, I just have to leave. I just have to quit. Like, I'm never going to figure this out. It's too big. It's too hard. I'm, I'm not smart enough. I just, this is it. And so it's that sense of like being patient and coming back and saying, okay, mm -hmm. You've got to try, just try something new. It doesn't have to be right. You just have to try. And then eventually you solve the problem after like a long time. Yeah. But I love that. I mean, it's one of my favorite parts about my job. But at the time you just think like, I can't, I just, I can't do it. I'll just quit. I'll just walk away. Um, the thing I don't like about my profession is that some of what I do, because I talked about being wrong better, some of what I do is I find the, the flaws in something. So you'll present me with an argument. My student will come to me with some argument. I think this is happening and this is happening. And it's my job to try and kind of poke holes in what they do or yeah. look for flaws because we're trying to fix it. Right. So I'll go, Oh, but that you've made, that's maybe wrong. And maybe that's wrong. 
And if you're not careful, it means it, it turns scientists into these hypercritical just jerks, right? Um, and, and you don't even realize it's like you're not trying to be mean. It's just your job to find the holes in something. But then you can transfer that to your whole life. It doesn't make scientists very humble thinking you can just solve everything all the time. Sometimes teens feel like their path has to be decided early on and that you can't veer off too much. But so often, as I talk to role models, I learn they have wildly different journeys to their success. Would you say your path was fairly straightforward or was it a bit messy along the way to your dream career? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some sense, my path was super clear because there isn't, um, there are people who take a roundabout route up the, this mountain, but at least in my job, um, I couldn't become a professor without a PhD. Mm-hmm. And so I knew actually, I took a year out before I started college because I knew once I started college, I had like nine years of study, like yeah, basically nine years. And I just had yeah. to do that. I started undergrad and then I did a master's and then I did a PhD. Right. So, and I, and then you can stop and you can take a break, but unless you know something else you want to do, it doesn't make sense. Right. So I was just like, okay, I know this is coming. So I took a year off and just like, you know, waited tables or whatever. And then, and then I did nine years of study. So that path is very clear. After that, um, you typically in, in my field, you do um, a research, like a three or four year research position. Um, and that's, because it's sort of like the holding pattern before you get a professorship because there aren't a lot of professorship jobs. And so you do this like research position in the hopes that you get one. And, and that's really brutal because it's the first time that you see your friends not getting a job or the market, like right now the market is really slow, right? So there are yeah. lots of people without jobs. And then you typically people then leave the field and then they go do other interesting things with science. So my path was clear. I wasn't always sure I would be able to get there, but at least I knew what to do if, you know, if, if I was going to get there. Um, and then I was, I was just really, um, I think really lucky and really like the, whatever stars align, haha, um, <laughs> get this faculty job. Um, I, I had, you know, a lot of my friends, parents said to them like, Oh, just get a job in San Francisco. Just get a job in Colorado. And it's like, you know, you apply for like 10 to 15 jobs and then maybe you get a callback for one of them mm-hmm. or two of them if you're lucky. Um, and so I was super lucky to be in a place like Toronto because it, I'd never thought of living here before. I didn't know anything about Canada really. Um, but I was excited about the, the job and also the people that I'm they're working with and the way they could enable me to do science. Um, and so then I landed up here. So yeah, I still pinch myself that it worked. What advice would you give to girls who want to follow in your footsteps? First of all, you don't have to be afraid about loving like being nerdy and loving what you do. I was really lucky. I didn't, when I was growing up, no one ever told me girls can't do that. You know, I had really supportive family and um, my high school, like everyone was, it was, it, it reminded me a little bit of book smart in the sense that they were just like nerdy and they liked that. Um, I really liked that movie. Um, but, but at the same time, I know a lot of people who were told that, you know, girls can't do that or whatever. In fact, weirdly enough, I get more of that now old, when I'm older people don't take me seriously as a, as a woman scientist now, but when I was young, they didn't, it was fine. Um, so I would say just understand that. And, and the other thing is, I think it's going to be hard, but that's okay. Like it doesn't, science doesn't have to be easy to be fun. And I think a lot of the time when people say, Oh, I'm just not good at math or I'm just bad at this. Like I, it's not like I wake up every day. I mean, there are some people who are geniuses, but it's not like I wake up every day and math is just easy for me. It's, it's very hard all the time, but I, 
think it's a kind of hard that I like. So figuring out the kind of hard that you're, that you like. And if you're passionate about it, that hard becomes fun. Um, but I guess the other piece of advice that I would give people is I used to think that everyone would want to support me or everyone would have my best interest in heart because why, why not? Right. But um, look for the people who really do and they will help you and support you. And if they're not, then don't waste your time, like trying to get people on your side. If you are, you know, if some, if you have a professor that's like telling you you can't do science, like don't, I, I personally didn't think there was any use in trying to convince them because I would just like get myself down um, rather than finding the people that can support you and then clinging to them. Earlier, you mentioned that one of your passions is to challenge stereotypes around what a scientist looks like and who is quote unquote allowed to be a scientist. Can you speak more to this? Yeah. So um, another thing that the thing that frustrated me, frustrates me a lot is people assume you have to be one thing. So like, I really love mm. science, but I, when I was in high school, I took French obviously. Um, but I also took art and like, I didn't do art because I wanted to be an artist. I did art because I loved it. And I, and I wanted to have that rich sense of myself, but people were like, Oh, you'll be, get, you'll do better grades, if, get better grades. If you do like biology or whatever. And I was like, I want to do stuff that brings me joy. It's just similarly, like, you know, I like makeup and I like, you know, getting my nails done or whatever. Like I think, being multifaceted in whatever access that is, whether that's music and, and art or, you know, science and, and languages or whatever. Like you don't have to be one thing. You don't have to be the stereotype of a scientist or the stereotype of an artist or the stereotype of whatever. Yeah. Like I, I always hated that. And so I wanted to do everything. I wanted to sing and dance and act and do science and be a nerd and do sport and do everything. Um, not well, but just do them all. And that's still the case today. I work on multiple different projects because I don't want to just do one thing. So I, I danced for 10 years when I was young, from like 10 to four, four to 14. And at that stage, I had to make a choice because I was like, either I'd become a dancer or I do the other things when I go to high school. Um, and I'm glad I picked to stop dance because I could do all these other things. But then similarly, like people, like even during my PhD, they're like, you have to pick one thing to do. You can't study multiple things. And I was like, well, but I kind of want to. And so mm-hmm. I stuck to my guns and did that. And in the end, it helped me a lot because I have all these multi- multifaceted interests. One of Futurista's goals is to help teens discover ideal careers on their own and help them avoid peer and parental pressure when it comes to future jobs. Did you experience any peer pressure when you were younger? And do you experience any today as a professional? I think the pressure, I put a lot of pressure on myself. Like my mom is very supportive and didn't give me too much pressure. But I think I, um, I like, not that I want to be the best. Like I don't really care about being better than other people, but I want to know at the end of the day, like, did I do a good job? And if the answer is yes, then I don't care what I get or if I pass or fail or whatever. But if the answer is no, it kind of irritates me. Like if I knew I didn't give it my best. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so that pressure is like self-motivated. Um, and sometimes yeah. I really, I also really want to be part of the team. Like it's really important to me to support and to do things for other people. Sometimes that means that I don't really realize like when I can say no, or like you don't have to solve everyone else's problems. You don't have to necessarily always be the person that everyone can rely on all the time. Mm-hmm. So as I get older, I'm learning to say no a little bit more, like, you know, not necessarily go out of my way, you know, to do a brand new thing if it isn't going to be useful. Um, but I think the the pressure sometimes that young people can be under is 
like you have to be better than some idea of yourself. And that I think is really, can be quite damaging. Like there is no perfect, like my students often say like, I want to be, I want to show you this perfect result. And I was like, the thing that you realize as you get older, particularly in science, is that perfect idea of yourself, it doesn't exist. Like Mm -hmm. there isn't a perfect version of yourself. You try hard enough, you're never going to get to this thing because it doesn't exist. The only thing that really matters is, can I today and tomorrow, like a little bit better at the thing I care about, whether that is, you know, working out or doing, you know, algebra or whatever. Can I just get a little bit better because in the end, it's that that growing is the, the getting better is the growing part. And I think when I was young, I thought, I think I thought I, by now I would be like a better human being, like I would be better at everything. And I realized that's not where the fun is. Like the fun is all the ways in which I learned how to do things, you know. Um, so I think with, with young people, there's sometimes the pressure to be great means that means you have such, such fear about making a mistake. You don't try anything, right? You don't do anything as opposed to saying, the thing I've got to do is try. Yeah. And then that trying, first of all, that makes me better, not perfect, but better. And also you, makes you learn things. What are some things you've learned, maybe even the hard way, that serve you well today? And do you have any special habits that you'd like to share with us? Not fearless. I don't like that word too much, but like... Mm, my sense of fear about things was always less than my desire to just give it a try. I actually think that's one of the things that's throughout my life has been a skill I didn't realize I had. Mm -hmm. Like I'll be afraid to do something, but my desire to try is bigger than that. And so only when I'm halfway through, do I realize like, Oh, this is a really, this is a really scary thing, but I'm like on stage now giving a talk or whatever. Like, Oh, I like I, as an example, I speak French. Um, not great, but I speak French. And so I thought it would be a great way to practice my French to just volunteer to give a talk in French. And like the day before, I was like, you're going to give a 45 minute talk in French. Like that was a ter- like that was a terrible idea, but I did it and it was great. One of the things I developed, I, I trained myself to fall asleep really quickly. Wow. So um, I learned how to take a 20 minute power nap where initially you put your head down and you're like, I can't fall asleep. I can't fall asleep. But you tell yourself only 20 minutes. I'm going to sleep. And now I can fall asleep in about 30 seconds. Like I just put my head down and I'm asleep. And that's really useful because it means, um, means I get a lot, I get like the perfect amount of sleep that I need. Um, and I think we don't, I know most people don't sleep enough. And I think sleeping is like the key. If I don't sleep enough, I get like sad and I'll like stub my toe and cry for 20 minutes. You know, you don't mm-hmm. understand why. And so I think learning how to sleep or, and valuing your sleep is really important. The other thing that helped me as well is realizing it's possible to, to um, separate yourself a little bit from emotional things that are happening. Now, I, I fully appreciate this isn't possible for everyone, but so my dad passed away when I was um, doing my PhD and it was a really strange experience. He died really suddenly. I was, I was in England we had had a strange relationship. And so it was like all these confusing feelings. I was like sad, but I was angry, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I found like, I found great comfort in the sense that I could build just a little bit of space between me and feeling really, really sad with things like, you know, things like science, things like reading. I could just create a little bit of space. Whereas previously you kind of feel like you're just going to be washed over. And I actually find like, that's really useful to me right now in this time, like everyone is super stressed and like overwhelmed. 
And the way that I'm creating a little bit of distance is, is just kind of silly things like, you know, I'm going to buy flowers for my house. I'm going to like have a little dance-a-thon and I'm going to like do, you know, make a silly video to put online. Like, so you just create that little bit of distance where I, it's not that I'm pretending it's not happening and it's not that I'm denying that it's happening, but I don't have to be overwhelmed every day all the time. You have some major accomplishments to be proud of. We can't help but ask, what's next on your dream list? There's one very big goal that I still have to achieve, um, which is that, so I'm not, I'm not tenured yet, which means, you know, I'm in this contract role and then in a, in a year I'll like submit my documents and I'll be like, oh, great job, be here forever. Um, so there's that obviously that I want to achieve, but I don't know. I think I'm not entirely sure what the goals will be, but I kind of want to be like, science advisor to the prime minister or like the president of the university. I have been fortunate enough to be in multiple countries in the world that have, that have supported science. And I want to be able to support the scientific community and, and the education community and all the people that have helped me in some way. And as I continue, those ways become more or less clear. Um, so partly I'd like to do research forever, but also I'd like to, you know, I'd, it would be really, I think, powerful to be able to say, you know, hey, Justin Trudeau, these are our recommendations for investment in science policy going forward. But now that's a very strange, like, I don't know how to do that yet. And it's quite a big goal. I'll have to figure out how to do that. But um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm just, I'm just going to be a professor long term. Um, I'd like to yeah, do other things too. As someone who has spent nine years studying, what is something you really wish was taught more in school today? How to be wrong. I feel like we talk about the scientific method, but we don't teach students what it means to be wrong. We just teach them like, ask a question, take some data, get an answer. But we don't talk, we don't realize, we don't teach people how to be wrong at all. So that's one, how to be wrong. Um, yeah. How to respect your physical body, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big problems with our field is like, making making people like realizing that you're not a machine and that you should sleep more and you should work out more and you know all those things lastly do you think it's better to be an a plus or an expert in one thing or more of a c maybe more average in many things yeah it's a tricky question i think a lot of people in the world would say that you should be an a plus at one thing but i think most of my life I just never wanted to pick. And so I would say I'm definitely in the C, C on everything camp. Also, because when you're young, maybe when you're older, but when you're young, you don't know what you're going to like yet. And so, you know, mm-hmm. people said to me, oh, you definitely should be a veterinarian or you definitely should be a whatever. And I don't know, you just try things and see what sticks. Something will make you feel like you'll try something and you'll just suddenly feel like I really love this. Or you'll try everything and you'll feel I really love all these things. And just as much energy as you have, do all the things you can. Wow, what an episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you feel inspired to shoot for the stars. <laughs> Pun intended. Check out our social channels at, at BeFuturista to learn more about Renee and get helpful tips. Sign up to our email list at BeFuturista.com to be the first to know about new episodes and updates to our platform and ambassador program. If you love the podcast, it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, review, and share with your friends. We appreciate you. See you next time.